ministry of our missionaries, thankful, thankful for the Depews. Turn with me, please, to Colossians chapter 4. I'd like to just introduce the context before I open in prayer. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. If I were to put a title to this, it would be Preach, Pray, and Plug Away. Um, preach, pray, and plug away. We find that all in this passage. As we step into the context, as I've been privileged to speak from Colossians um, a few times the last year, Paul's driving home the point in this book that one's, one's life must be translated by practice. Confession isn't enough. It must be evident in the way that they pattern their lives and by the way that they live. So that's been a major point. You remember chapters 1 and 2? He's stressing the supremacy of Christ. This is who Christ is. And then that flows into chapters 3 and 4, more the practical side. This is submission to Christ. So based on who Christ is, this is our submission. And so we, in this practical chapters of the book, chapters 3 and 4. In chapter 3, he's driving home the point of, of how one's to live out their life. And we looked at verses 5 to 17 of chapter 3 and looking at the new man, the old man, and how that's to be fleshed out in our life. And then we flow from there and from one's practice and what we should put on and what, what we should put off. He then gets into relationships that we address in verses 18 through chapter 4, verse 1, and how all in our relationships, how it ought to be really submitting to the Lordship of Christ. And we make that statement because nine times the word Lord or kurios is used. Two times master, but it's the same Greek word. So he's driving home the point that in our relationships, this is what it would look like as Christ, Christ is supreme. And now we step into our section, chapter 4, verses 2 to 6, and he's looking at how is it demonstrated? Okay, he was working on this is the way it is in our life, in our relationships. This is the way it is and what I am to put on and put off. Now he turns the corner in chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Now here's the way it is, it looks like, to the outside world. This is the way it is to be out there. And I asked Pastor if I could take this Sunday as we concluded out our, our um, mission month just previous as we were um, sharing pastors um, who's to take Sundays because I wanted to follow up on mission month um, with this passage. Let me read verses 2 to 6 and we'll pray. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, this awesome book that just shows us the person of Christ, that in Christ all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily, that in Christ that he is truly God incarnate, when he came to this earth. And we thank you for that truth. And God, as we look at the practical chapters of the book, may our response be that, Lord, we want you to be Lord in our life. We want you to control every aspect of our lives. God, may we follow you, um, even by the use of our lips and our lives, to share the gospel, I pray in Christ's name, amen. My big idea, if I were to put one on the screen, which I um, didn't get to do, and my apology, but pray for and proclaim the spread of the gospel, that we are to pray for and we are to proclaim the spread of the gospel. And we'll see in verses 2 to 4 um, the call to 
Paul calls for them to pray for an open door. He says, would you pray that God opens a door? And then in verses five and six, he calls for them to walk through open doors. Back some 300 years ago, there was a great preacher named, actually I guess 300, 400 years ago, um, a preacher named Jonathan Edwards who lived in the early 1700s. And he was a, a man that's a brilliant theologian on how God used him in his, in his years and impacted New England for God. Um, but John and Ed Edwards, one of his famous messages that most of us here can name, what is it? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. Um, Jonathan Edwards was greatly used of God in the preparation and the preaching of that message. But from a human standpoint, when we look at this one message that made an incredible impact throughout New England and people are still being moved by that message today, we look and ask, well, how did it happen? I know God did it, but we look at Jonathan Edwards and it's recorded that he was a man that didn't move around, didn't have gestures, didn't try to keep attention that way. He really didn't even have a commanding voice. You listen to some of these great evangelists and men of the great awakening, how they would just shout forth and 20,000 people could hear them. He didn't have a strong commanding voice. In fact, he read his manuscript, monotone, standing and reading. So, so how did God use such a man to preach such a message to bring about a great awakening that he was really the, the trigger point to that. John Chapman in his book, in his book talks about the preparation. I'll just read what he writes. For three days, Edwards had not eaten a mouthful of food. For three nights, he had not closed his eyes in sleep. Over and over again, he was heard to pray, oh Lord, give me New England. Give me New England. When he arose from his knees and made his way into the pulpit that Sunday, he looked as if he had been gazing straight in the face of God. Even before he began to speak, tremendous conviction fell upon his audience. And that's the Paul Harvey story. Hear how God just used this man in his heart and preparing as he stepped into the pulpit. May we have such a heart desire. May we have a desire where we pray, God, give me Hamilton or give me Ewing, or give me Trenton, wherever you may live, that, that we yearn to share the gospel with those around us. So we step into verses 2 to 4, and we see Paul, Paul is, is, is praying. I, as I said, I call this the call to pray for an open door. Um, in this section, he says, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Paul isn't just focusing on one's prayer. Um, that's not the major theme here. He's not just saying, this is what you need to be doing, but he's defining or focusing on one's entire existence as you look at prayer, and it's defined as prayerful alertness. So he's calling on the Colossians, pray continually, continue in prayer, but he's calling on them to be watchful. So he wants them to be praying, but he wants them to have a prayerful attention or alertness in their prayer. For what purpose? Why does he call on them to pray alertly? Why does he call on them to pray urgently? What is he after? And I say it's one thing that he's after, to advance the kingdom of God. Because he asks for them to pray for an open door, and then he calls on them to go through the open doors that God is opening. So he calls them, he begs them, he Ask them, would you just pray, pray continuously, continue steadfastly in prayer. Um, as the translation says, it means to persevere. It means to be unflinching. 
It means to continue steadfastly. It means not to give up. It's, a, it's an imperative. It's as a farmer. You look, we saw a video of the pews and they're plowing and hoeing. But picture a person that has their hand to the plow and they don't stop. They keep plowing. They have a job to do. If it's raining, it doesn't matter. They'll keep, they'll keep their hands to the plow. If they're being pelted all around, they have a task. They continue steadfast. That's the language here. Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. He's calling them to persevere. Stay with it. This isn't the first time that he's referred to prayer. And back in chapter 1, verse 9, Paul had prayed for the Colossians. And he told them that I'm praying that you will just know the will of God, that you'll grow in it. So he had prayed on their behalf. And now he's asking for them to pray on his behalf. So would you continue steadfastly in prayer for me? Would, would you persevere in prayer? How do you do in prayer? How is your prayer life? Is it defined by continue steadfastly? You know, I think all too often, um, many of us, our prayers are pretty glib, um, pretty nonchalant. We lose focus. We really don't have reverence for God. We're not focused on him. We're focused on ourselves, self-centered. Maybe we view God almost like a, an ATM machine. Um, you put in the right code, outspits the denomination and the request that you want. Um, but that's not what Paul's viewing here. He's calling on them to pray steadfastly. It's a prayer that has purpose. And the purpose that he's about to get to is what he wants them to, to be doing. But he continues, not only continues steadfastly in prayer, but in this area, he said, being watchful with thanksgiving. And then he unloads what he wants in verse 3. But he says, continue steadfastly, but I now want you also to be, to be alert in your prayers, um, to be watchful in it with thanksgiving. You know, when we think of, of prayer that, that demands, we think of prayer that, that he's calling on them to pray steadfastly for one purpose, to advance the kingdom of God. And he's making a strong request. It's not a suggestion. He's commanding them. I'm reminded of a prayer that Martin Luther Prayed in 1540, uh, many years ago. Martin Luther had a great friend, his assistant, um, one Frederick, Frederick Myconis. And this, his friend Frederick was a man that had battled with him, reforming the church. He was his right-hand man, and he became deathly sick. And he wrote a, actually a pretty loving, sweet note to, to Martin Luther saying goodbye, telling him farewell, that um, his journey was great, but that God was calling him home. Martin Luther wrote these words back to him. I command you in the name of God to live because I still have need of you in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will never let me hear that you are dead, but will permit thee to survive me. For this I am praying, and this is my will, and may my will be done because I seek only to glorify the name of God. Is that shocking? You know what happened? He was restored to health. And he outlived Luther. They lived, the two of them, for six more years. And he lived two months beyond Luther. I mean, here's a man that had a passion and a prayer life that he could step into the presence of God, knew what he was doing. I command you to live. And he's calling on God boldly. God save him because there's, a, there's, not, there's still a work to do. We're not done our work yet. It's that kind of prayer that Paul is getting into the face of the Colossians and he's commanding them, continue steadfastly in prayer. And he says, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. He says, I want you to be alert. I don't want you to be some soft Christian falling asleep. Be focused. 
Um, I have the privilege of coaching with, with Dave. You're going to say, get your head in the game if some of the kids aren't being focused. But he's saying to them, get your head in the game. Come on, be alert. The game is that we're advancing the kingdom of God. And you have a purpose. I want you to continue steadfastly. And I want you to be watchful. It's to be alert. I didn't put the words on the screen, but Romans 13, being watchful that knowing that it's high time for the day of our salvation is nearer than the day we believe. He's calling on them to be watchful in prayer because we have a job to do. Uh, Don't be slackers. I read this and conviction and just floods my heart and my soul. God, when, how often do I pray like this? How, do, how often do I continue steadfastly? Am I watchful? And it's really an eschatological term. He's really saying in light of the time. These are pressing days. The door is open. We must preach the gospel. And he's calling on them to be watchful. But it's also kind of cool. What's the last word that he has in verse 2? What's he, what's he end verse two with? He calls them to be continued and watchful with what? With thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is usually um, when somebody does something for you, right? Um, somebody bakes you cookies or somebody does whatever. You say, you, there's th- you say thank you because you have it. Paul is viewing it as if they have it. Continue in this, pray steadfastly. Oh, by the way, give God thanksgiving. He's viewing it as if they're to give thanks because he's guaranteed that God's going to answer. He has the Martin Luther mindset. Or maybe Martin Luther had his. <laughs> um, but he's understanding that, that God, God's going to answer this. And so in your prayers, as you cry out to God, you're continuing. So, by the way, it's verse 3 is what he's sure of. And 5 and 6. Um, but he says, you continue steadfastly, you have, you're watchful, you're alert, you're with thanksgiving, and this is what he's after. In verse 3, we now see Paul's, Paul's laser focus. He's after the Colossians, and he's a laser beam looking right at them. He's right on target, and he's stressing this in their prayers. At the same time, pray for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I'm in prison. So he's, he's, he begs on them. He says, this is what I want you to be asking in your prayer, that God would open a door for us. Well, what an awesome prayer. That, that God, would you open doors? Um, may we pray that. God, God, would you open doors in the Hamilton area? God, would you open doors in Trenton at our Mosaic ministry? God, would you open doors this, this week in Panama, Kuna Islands? people maybe that will be on a flight that we're traveling with. God, open doors with people that we rub shoulders with. Open doors. And so Paul here is, is praying. He says, I'm asking that you open a door. But what, what does he want a door open for? Um, what is he after? Um, it's the same pray, pray for us that God would open a door so that we could get out of prison, open a door so the meal menu may change, open a door so that we could get those blankets a little more comfort. I haven't gotten my Rocky movie yet. What is he praying for an open door for? Pray for an open door to declare the mystery of Christ. He doesn't want anything personally. He's all about advancing the kingdom of God. That is his passion. That is his heartbeat. That is his focus. I must advance the kingdom of God. God, it hurts. I need to share the gospel with people. I want to see people saved. So Paul's focus in Paul's heart, God, that God would give us an open door. 
there are, there are a couple of verses in Corinthians that refers to this. Paul has prayed for open doors in the past. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 8 and 9, gives us an open door for which he has prayed. When he said, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door, um, for effective work is open to me, and there are many adversaries. Paul, Paul has used this language before. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 12, also has open door terminology. So he's praying, God, open the door. And he's asking the church at Colossae, would you pray that God would open a door for us so that we could be effective in sharing the gospel? It's pretty, pretty cool. Two things are connected, and I don't want us to lose it. Um, He's praying, he's asking them to continue steadfastly, um, and there's an urgency with it, right? Verse 3, watchful in it. So we see urgency or focus in understanding um, what's happening. So here is alertness or focus and mission. They're connected. Alertness and mission. He's calling on them to be alert, and now he lays out his prayer request that we are, that we're to be on mission, and he's about to pull them in in verses 5 and 6. But that's an important connection. I will not be on mission if I'm not alert. How can I be on mission for God if I'm not alert in my prayers, if I'm not yearning for that, if I'm not praying for that, if I'm not focusing on that, and I'm not crying out to God? So he's connecting alertness and mission here to the church at Colossae. May you be alert. May we be on mission. But what he specifically asks is for the mystery of Christ to be shed or to be spoken. Um, what's a mystery? Um, we sometimes think of mysteries, oh, something that we don't know. Well, it's not really that. And I think we talked about this back when we looked in chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, the mystery of Christ. Mystery is something that was previously hidden that is now made known. So here when you look at all of the truth in the New Testament that's unpacked and unfolded, and that's kind of one of the sessions, um, we have two sessions, the first half, how the Old Testament and New Testament is connected that we'll be looking at in Panama, and looking at just, here's the story of the Old Testament. He keeps giving us hints, hints, hints of what's to come, and then the New Testament just unpacks it all, puts the dots all together, connects the lines and that's really what, what Paul wants here when he's speaking of the mystery. Something that was previously hidden, that, but it's now it's made known. I want to talk about Christ that people don't know about, but he was revealed before. And that's his heart's desire, that he would be able to shout forth Christ. But more specifically, it's really the content of the gospel. As he's speaking to a lot of Gentiles, that they would understand the mystery of Christ, the, the, the contents of the gospel, the truth of, of Jesus Christ. So he's praying for that open door so he can share with them and talk to them about Christ and, and all that he's done. You know, it's easy to read and talk about one's prayer life in this passage. Um, it's even easy to speak a message, so to speak, and encourage how we should pray. Um, but sometimes we, we talk about things and put them in the sugar window, but they're not back in the stock room. Um, we talk about things that are here, but they're not back there. Or maybe differently we could be hypocrites Paul is no hypocrite Paul's the real deal because what Paul's talking about an open door is is something that he lived down in his life because we just need to remember where Paul is right now right um, if we were to go back through the book of Acts Paul is preaching he's on his third missionary journey and he's 
accused by, that he brought Gentiles into the temple area, which he had not done. And he, a mob is inciting and brought around him and they're screaming and really angry with him and, and things are getting pretty rough. And quickly, the Romans come in and rescue Paul um, from the mob. And so Paul is taken in prison. His prison goes on for a couple years. He's held in prison. Finally, he makes an appeal to Caesar. And he takes a road trip to Rome via ship, um, shipwrecked, all that happens there, eventually ends up in Rome. So now as he's sitting in Rome, he's in prison. In fact, if we were to pick up the end of Acts 28, which we won't turn there, but 1331 talks about him. He's in prison. People are coming there. So this book is written as he's in prison. You have the prison epistles. You have Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. All of these books are written as Paul's in prison. So when Paul says, pray for an open door, the man's in prison because he was going through open doors. The man's in prison for faithfully preaching the gospel. He is no hypocrite. He's living out what he's pulling them into. He's sharing his laser focus and he's calling on them to have that same laser focus. He said, pray that we will continually be on mission, that God will open doors. Then he says, on account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. He says, pray that God opens the door, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Does that word ought sound familiar to you? Anything that we covered recently, ought? Go ahead. Must, it is, it's the same word. We call mission of must, it's that same word that pastor traced through in some of his sermons, the same um, Greek word that's found here. So Paul, and by the way, it's also used in verse six. So Paul's on this, this mission of must, by which I must speak, I have to. It's a necessity, it's just part of his DNA. It's that same word, if you remember, that's used in Luke 19, verse 5. <clears throat> when Jesus is traveling, he stopped at the foot of the tree, and he says to Zacchaeus, come down, for I must go to your house today, or ought. Um, it's that same word that's used in John chapter 4. When Jesus is passing through Samaria, and the writer records, he had to go through Samaria. Or it's the same word that's used in John 9, 4. Uh, when talking with the disciples about the blind man and whose sin parents that he didn't know that God would be glorified. And he says that we must do the works of him who sent me while it is yet day. It's that same mission of must that Paul uses here. He is on a mission that I must share the gospel. Friends, are we on any less of a mission? We that are blessed to know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we that are blessed to be in his family, are we on any less of a mission? I think of Matthew 5, Matthew 9, Matthew 28, all passages that call us into mission to re be reminded that God has called us to be a light. God has called us to be salt. God has called us to be witnesses and to share the gospel with others. There's a story from 70 years ago, 80 years ago, September 1941, the Germans moved into the town of Tricasi, Ukraine. And in September, they quickly started arresting Jews. It was October of 1941, a month later, that there was a knock at the door of one named Brother Zervaka. Now, Brother Zervaka was a Jew, but he was a pastor of the Baptist church in town had been saved for 20 years and was a pastor. He lived in a half house and another half house all attached was another Christian family. And German soldiers surrounded their house, 
bombarded into it. Five minutes later, he's coming out with his wife and three little ones, each carrying a sack. And their neighbors, Christian neighbors, says, what's happening here? What's happening? And the German guard just pushed him, said, schnell, schnell, pushing him forward. And he shouted to his friend, farewell till we meet in heaven again. And they took him to the prison camp in town. Um, and the preachers in town met the next day. We have to do something for our, our, our brother. And once the commandant is, is, is a rough man, he will not listen to us, will not have a word with him. Um, there's nothing that we can do. And so they're going back and forth. And one said, all we can do is pray. Finally, Pastor Gummini, if I'm pronouncing that right, of the Baptist church said, we must do both. We must pray and we must act. And so that night, they spent time in prayer, and they also wrote a letter um, to the commandant that they went down the next morning. Now, they weren't Jews or Gentiles, Russians. Um, they went down to the prison camp, asking to see the commandant. And all they got was a duty officer, and handed him the letter. The duty officer, what do you want? They told him what they wanted, threw the letter on the ground, and said, get out of here, we're going to put you in jail. And they did that for two weeks. They kept going down, continually denied, turned away for two weeks. They kept going. So finally, on the second week, the commandant um, admitted them into his presence. He was able to hear their plea. And he says, I'm only doing what I've been commanded to do. Now get out of here unless you be put in prison. And then they said these words. Um, let me find the note. Um, Zavaka has been a Christian for more than 20 years. He's an honorable believer. He's been preaching the gospel and serving as assistant pastor in the Cherkasi Church. We ask you to release Brother Zavaka as a member of our church into our personal responsibility. He is no threat to you Germans. And they argued back and forth, and eventually the man just softened and called his duty officer next to him, and had him write down, and he closed his words, he is no threat to the Germans, and handed it off, and they said, come back in two days. So they all came back in two days, and excited because of what God was, was doing, and they're waiting outside the big prison door. They waited 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. Finally, the door swung open, and as they're standing there, they look in, and they see the, the brothers of Vukka's family, but he leaves his wife and three children and he comes out and he talks to them and he says these words, thank you for your petitions and for your dangerous work on my behalf. I've been preaching here about Christ to my people, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In this place, as they wait for death, many of my countrymen are open to the word of God. Some have already embraced the good news of Christ in their hearts. In these two weeks, 20 people have trusted Christ as their personal Savior, and many others listen attentively as I preach from the Word of God. I believe that the Lord sent me and my family to this prison to witness for Christ to these perishing Jews. If I, as a preacher of the gospel, leave them behind in this terrible place and walk out of the prison with my family, these people will curse Christ and turn away from the faith. I'll be guilty before God for their eternal fate. My wife and I have talked it over. We've decided that our whole family will stay in the prison and go through the same horror that awaits everyone else. And as they talked and saw they could not budge him, they said goodbye and they hugged Brother Zavaka and they walked out the prison and he said farewell till we see, until we meet in heaven. Um, and they never saw him again. But it was a man that had a focus that was a man that was willing to, in his closing days, weeks, months, years, 
um, to stay faithful in preaching the gospel to his fellow Jews in the Chikasi prison. And Paul is that same kind of stripe as he's sitting in prison. He's writing to the church at Colossae and he's calling on them to pray. Pray that by all means we might save some. Is really the line also that I forgot to say that Zervaka said, and that's really from Paul, that, that we would save some. May that be our heart's desire. And Paul is writing this to the Colossians that we may make it clear. He wants the gospel to be crystal clear. He doesn't want it to be any doubt about it. He wants them to be able to see it, to understand it, and to be able to make a decision because they have prayed for an open door and he's spoken it clearly. Well, in verses five and six, we looked at first the call to pray for an open door. He asked them to pray for an open door. Verses 5 and 6 is the call to walk through open doors. This might be a little different, um, maybe to what you have traditionally read these verses. I'm pretty prejudiced that I think I'm right. Um, but we look in verses 5 and 6. Um, he's calling on them to walk through open doors. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So he's calling on them as co-workers. He says, now I'm calling on you to walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Um, walk is used a few times in the book of Colossians. I think five times this, this, this verb is used. And he's really talking about how they're to, to, to live their life, to conduct their life. And it's talking, yes, about one's behavior, but it's far more than that in light of the context. Paul is calling on them, walk in wisdom. Um, he's emphasizing the knowledge that they have, the wisdom that they have. May we walk in a knowledge that it leads to right thinking and right actions. So yeah, he is talking about their behavior. Let us walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Outsiders are the Gentiles, people that aren't saved. So may the way that I walk, Yes, the way that I, that I handle myself, the way that I speak, the way that I live, may it point to Christ, may I walk in wisdom. But this is the part that shows us that he's talking about far more than just being gracious in our lips, that there's a, a serious connection to the gospel. Because he then says, making the best use of the time. So he has this whole thing of urgency that he's driving his agenda and he wants an open door because of the, the moment in which we live. So he says, walk wisely for this purpose to make the best use of our time. You're familiar with this word. It's an awesome word. It's Galatians 4, 5 and Galatians 3, 13. It's used redeem. I don't think redemption is in this context, but it's that same idea that Christ redeemed us from the law. It's the same word that's used here. Um, it's the word really buying out. Okay, to buy something out. Uh, we call redemption something was paid for and bought in return. Here we have the same idea of buying out. So he's telling the Colossians, buy out the opportunities that God has given to us. We each have open doors that God is placing before us. Let us not be cowards. Let us not be silent. We must take these opportunities that he's given to us and share the gospel, making the best use of our time, the best use of our time to witness, the best use of our time to share so as he's connecting it, I'm going to walk in wisdom. I want to walk wisely as I submit to Christ. I want to walk a wise life. A wise life is, a, is, is really a life lived in submission to Christ. As I live submitted to him and put him first in my life and how I'm going to live. And then I look for opportunities. I make the best use of every opportunity that's before us. How can we make 
the best use of every opportunity? Or, or how do you buy back the time? How do you make the most of every opportunity? Um, how do you do that? Um, if God were to say to you, Lawrence, Lance, Dave, um, I want you to use the time that you have and make it count, the best opportunity. Would it be for us now to go and, and um, or for you to get consumed in temporal things? And I realize we live in the world, so we can't live like uh, this aura of holiness where we never do anything, well, that's unholy. But, but if I'm consumed, if I'm defined by, by always watching sports or if I'm defined by always thinking of savings or what I want to buy or depending where you are in your stage of life, saving for retirement or saving for this or that or getting a bigger car or a faster car or taking this big vacation. If that's what defines us, is that making the best use of our time? See, Paul's laser focus is in a completely different vein. The best use of our time, making every moment count as I remember that people are going to eternity separate from, give me New England as Jonathan Edwards cried. As I have that heart that I must share the gospel with people. I must make the best use of every time, every moment that I have. It's Psalm 90 verse 12. Teach us to number our days. My days are numbered. You know, as I start to count out. Okay, let's see. If I count out, I have another 35 years because my dad lived to be 98. Poor Lynn has that many years with me. Um, I thought I would say it before you did. (laughs) You know, but that's not a whole lot of time. Georgi Vins is one of my heroes of the faith. Um, 1979, President Carter worked out with the leader of Russia at that time, Brezhnev. Is that how you say his name? We'll go with that. Um, a prisoner exchange. There were a couple of prisoners for preaching the gospel that were in prison in Russia, and we knew of Georgi Vins, and um, we had two Soviet spies, and we made an a- even exchange. Um, Georgi Vins spoke at Baptist Bible College back in 1979. It was really cool after he had just been released. But anyway, he began this, this uh, ministry called Prisoner Bulletin in Elkhart, Indiana, centered and really being the voice for um, the, the imprisoned in the West. And so he, in one of his articles, I remember reading, he talked about a pastor that was in, um, oh boy, it's escaping me the town. I'm going to say I thought it was in... Um, no, I'm not even going to guess it. Anyway, somewhere in Russia. And he went to this town. And this pastor said, we want to have a re- revival in your city here. But we need somebody that will give us a field so that we could have a tent holding 2,000 people. And all of the leadership met at the city. And then one man said, I-, I-, I would do it, but I have fruit, fruit trees in my back. And another man said, I, I would do it, but my, my neighbor is a policeman. We can't do it. We'll be arrested. And then the third man said, I could have done it, but I just built a garage because I'm about to get a car. And so there was no answer that night. And so they said, let's meet tomorrow to see if we've come up with a solution how we can hold this revival meeting. And so um, he went to the house of one of the men there, and the man said, can you come to my backyard? And he showed him his backyard. He says, is my backyard fit? And he says, no, it won't work. I said, well, why won't it work? Well, look at your orchard. You have your orchard trees. They're all over the place. He says, but is it big enough? He said, oh, it's perfect, but you have orchard trees. He says, okay. So the next day, they uh, went back to their meeting, and the pastor stands up and says, did anybody come up with a solution? 
um, anything. And the past, this man stood up and said, well, we already agreed. He says, what do you mean? We agreed. Well, you said my yard is perfect. He says, your yard's not perfect. You have all the trees. He says, I don't have the trees. I chopped them all down. And everybody was shocked. They said, what do you mean you chopped them all down? And now you're starting to have all these people volunteering. Well, I could have had it in my yard. Well, I could have had it over here. He says, no, you're not. It's going to be at my house. I chopped all the trees down. And they had it at his house. True story. Um, after the revival meetings, his three married sons each accepted Jesus Christ as their Savior. And the pastor said to him afterwards, he says, do you regret chopping down the trees? He says, it's too early to tell if I would have had a harvest to see if they would work, but I, I have a harvest with my three sons, for they will be with me in eternity in heaven. That is this Colossians 4, 5, and 6 mindset. God, give me open doors that I can be used of what I have to expand the kingdom for your glory, for your purposes. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Gracious, I, I think, is more divine grace filled, fallen from our lips, what God can do in the lives of people versus just our conduct. So let it be gracious. Let, let your speech just be salt as you share the good news of Jesus Christ and its preservative and how it changes lives. Let them see that and hear that. Maybe it's telling them Jesus stories of how in this narrative day and age in which we live, people like to maybe hear stories more. Maybe we go to Luke chapter eight and say, hey, can I just tell you about how awesome my God is? He's on this boat and it's fierce and nasty and this is what's happening, but this is the power that he has. Be still. Or, or let me tell you about my God that's not so distant. You know, he traveled all night of a busy agenda to get to the other side of the Sea of Galilee because there was a wild man and he knew everybody would reject him but this one man. And he changed that man's life for all of eternity. That man became quite a preacher, by the way. Um, my God's not distant. My God cares. My God's close. Remember we talk about the next story then and it's a Luke chapter 8, Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood. That my God, my God's a freedom fighter because here's this man, his daughter's dead dead but he freed her from her death or this woman has this issue of blood she's hopeless and he freed her from her hopelessness just words of salt as we get to know people and just we tell them stories about Jesus and how he changes lives and and who he is in closing Paul says in verse 4 how I ought to speak and verse 6 how you ought to speak how you ought to answer each person. He calls on them that they would be equipped and prepared so they know how to speak. May we have passion born out of compassion. May our hearts so burn within us. May we be like a Jonathan Edwards. Give us New England or our die, or it's John Knox, a leader of Scotland. The Reformation in the 1500s cried these words, give me Scotland or I die. Or George Whitfield that said, give me souls or take my soul. Or David Brainerd, right up the road here, American missionary wrote this, I care not where I go or how I, sleep, how I live or what I endure so that I may save souls. When I sleep, I dream of them. When I awake, they are first in my thoughts. Oh God, that we would pray. 
God, give us, give us Hamilton or I die. But these words are easy, right? Easy to say in a sense. But as we get passionate in our prayers, God, let me see the world as you see it. Let me see the need that is out there. And then we start to take steps, building bridges with neighbors, building bridges with work associates, all of the meanwhile praying because we can't just be on mission. We need prayer and we connect it to being alert in our prayers and on mission. May God give us a great harvest for his glory. Let's close in prayer. God, give us souls or may we feel like we're going to die. Give us people that we could share the good news of Jesus Christ with. God, you've changed our lives and we want to be used of you to see other people's lives changed. Thank you for the testimonies that we heard today, testimonies of opportunities to serve. God, may we be found faithful in serving you. In Christ's name I pray, amen.